0: I always wonder if, uh, Peter, if you get the urge just to start preaching during the setup for those songs, or not, but uh, I can see if you would get that sometimes, but anyway. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. Glad you guys are here. If you're visiting today, especially welcome to you. Glad you guys are with us to uh, wherever you guys are spiritually, but uh, just in general to be here and to, to worship or just learn from the Bible or to be around a community that you're invited with or whatever the case. Glad you guys are, are here we are in, right now, in a series kind of nearing the end. It's been a couple years. I haven't been able to say kind of nearing the end for two years, but we're going to say that now because this is the final stretch in uh, what has become our longest sermon series ever in our eight years. Kind of short history in some ways, though. I did have a couple people last week say who are from some other church plants in our network here in the city that you guys are kind of old now. I ran into someone at Home Depot yesterday who's from uh, Hope, our sending church, They said you're eight years old, and you guys are kind of old. And i like, well, I guess, you know, but it's all relative to where you come from. But we still kind of feel young, but we do feel a little bit ingrained, I think in a good way. Comfort can always be something you don't want to rest on your laurels with too much, of course. But um, I think comfort can also be a gift at the same time. So in any case, here we are. But um, regardless, we're in the Gospel of Matthew right now, the first book of the New Testament, preaching uh, what we call and many call expositionally through the book. So basically A to Z, verse by verse, and stopping section by section to just talk about Jesus. And we believe it's our contention here at Hiawatha is, is really the, the greater historical church throughout the last couple thousand years that everything in the Bible is ultimately about Jesus, whether indirect and a foreshadowing type manner from the Old Testament primarily or in a very explicit or clear manner, less foggy manner in the New. So We've been talking about Christ then from a variety of angles as he's gone through his whole life, from his birth up through his baptism, his commissioning of, of his ministry through John the Baptist, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, through his healings and teachings, and now all the way up to what is now Holy Week. So if you're new to the Gospel, new to the Bible, the last portion of Matthew, really since preaching-wise here at Hiawatha, since we've been in uh, the Matthew since June, so last few months, we've really been this last week of Jesus' life, Holy Week, when he, he moved from Galilee or t- traveled from Galilee, this northern region south to Jerusalem, had his final clash with these religious rulers and is having that currently, finally teaches his disciples and has these final remarks about his death, it's right on the doorstep. So really this last week of his life is given a lot of ink in the book and has a priority. It's the climax of not just Matthew, but the whole of biblical history is, is moving to this one moment where God not just enters the world and becomes like us, but dies as one of us as an advocate for sinful people like us. So the fact that God became a human being And not a rock or a dog or a plant to save those things. But a human being to associate as one of us, to die as one of us is crucial. We have to understand that. If God just appeared and and looked human, but didn't actually become human, he couldn't die as one of us for us. So God actually had to become human, and he does. That's the manger. That's the beginning of Matthew where he's born into the world through woman, but, but conceived of by the Holy Spirit. So fully God God's his Father, and fully human at the same time, born of woman, born of Mary, coming into the world and ultimately to teach, to walk the road, though, of Calvary to the cross, carrying his cross and carrying all of our sins with him, to be nailed to a bloody tree among criminals to die in our place. That's the gospel that the whole of the scriptures is about, and that's what it's going to be about today as well from this unique angle in Matthew 26, 6 to 16. So have this in mind as I read this great little passage uh, that is just, I like think Peter mentioned this, just a few hours now. We were a couple of days, uh, last week, a couple of days prior, talking about the Passover and so forth, the setup to the Passion narrative, but now we're just actually hours, under a day, between this moment and his crucifixion. So, Matthew 26, 6 to 16. Follow along on screen or your Bibles if you have them, your devices, whatever you got. Matthew 26, 6 to 16. Verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. All right, so uh, just a quick recap of this. The the crux of the story, there's a lot going on here, and I'll recap some of this as we go along as well. But the crux of this little exchange that Jesus has with this woman and his disciples, and this Judas uh, issue uh, is juxtaposed, which I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, He goes out to betray Jesus to the chief priest and receives 30 pieces of silver in exchange for telling the chief priest where Jesus is. That'll become more prominent in coming weeks here. But the crux of what's going on is that Jesus is in Bethany, small town outside of Jerusalem. This has been uh, indicative of his week, is this last Holy Week, this past week of his life. He's gone to the city during the day to teach and interact with people, but he's uh, been in Bethany at night, at least for some of these nights, and this last night is uh, no, uh, no difference. So he's in Bethany, he's reclining at table, he's in the house of Simon the leper, and a woman is there who another one of the gospel accounts identifies as Mary, Mary of Bethany. So if I refer to Mary throughout this morning, just have that in mind. Uh, even though Matthew just says woman, another one of the gospel accounts, uh, versions of this story says Mary of Bethany, so we know that's who it is. Uh, Mary approaches Jesus with a very expensive alabaster flask, about the size of a soda can, an alabaster flask of, of ointments. Very expensive. We'll talk about how much it costs here in a little bit, but anoints him. Very customary expression of hospitality during the day, but what's unique here is the amount of money that it cost and how much ointment was used uh, to pour on. Christ. So the disciples saw this and were indignant over it and they thought there's got to be a better way to spend this money. We could have sold it. It's a multi-thousand dollar uh, flask of ointment. We could have sold this and given the money to the poor. Wouldn't that have been better? And Jesus' response is stop bothering the woman. What she has done is a beautiful thing and she's, she's actually pre- helped prepare me for my impending death, my burial. There's no better way to use this ointment. There's no better way to spend the money. Then again, Judas goes out after this. Another one of the gospel accounts recounts that it's actually Judas who's most indignant over this. Right here, it just says all the disciples were confused over this woman's actions, but another one of the gospel accounts actually says that Judas is kind of incited through this. He's so taken up by it through his love of money or just through disillusionment with Jesus and what he was really about in his ministry, his impending death. He's talking about his death. What's that all about? That he goes out at this point, and again, in his love for money, seeks out 30 pieces of silver to betray uh, his, his discipler, his savior. who doesn't believe that anymore, but his friend, Jesus Christ. Okay, so what do we learn here? Four gospel truths, and I'll, like I said, I'll recap some of this as we go along. There's a lot going on here, uh, but the crux of it is this exchange Jesus has with his disciples over this woman's actions, which I'll get to. Before we get there, though, we'll learn a few other things along the way that are, that are very important that tells us about Jesus' true mission and what's really going on here, basically on the eve of his death, hours away from his betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion, ultimately his resurrection. So what do we learn? Uh, four gospel truths. The first thing is, a bit of a review from last week, so I won't spend a ton of time on this, though it spills over into this week. Those of you who weren't here last week, this will be new for you. Or a reminder, either way, very important to get. It's part of what the narrative's trying to tell us, is that God is still in control. So last week we talked about how clearly Jesus was not just predicting the mode of his death, crucifixion. Remember he said that he says I'm going to be crucified a couple of days from now, but also how he was orchestrating the timeline and the calendar of the whole thing as well. How he was bent on dying on Passover. It's crucial for Jesus. Very important for him. He's wanted to die in the festival of Passover to help demonstrate and symbolize that he was the ultimate Passover lamb, whose blood was going to be shed to allow wrath and judgment for our sin to pass over us and in that way fulfill the pattern of this Old Testament festival and prophecy. If we believe and by faith paint his blood over the doorposts and lintels of our soul, like the Israelites did in the Old Testament before they escaped from Egypt and before they were able to to weather that final plague that God brought upon the Egyptians and all those that did not have the blood of this lamb painted over the doorposts and lintels of their home, Jesus is saying that if we do that, though, we will escape from sin and we will weather this plague of wrath and judgment that is coming into the world, that already has, in one sense, and that is, even from our vantage point in history, the Bible says, is still finally coming, that day of judgment when Jesus returns. This week, what we're going to do, though, is build on that foundation by seeing that more Old Testament prophecy and patterns are, again, spilling over into this week's section and they're being fulfilled. Especially we could say at this point too, if we're just reading this for the first time, especially and uh, we don't understand the end of the story maybe, we're just reading Matthew A to Z, reading the Bible A to Z at this point, we could say that uh, at this point, one of his closest friends is betraying him. Certainly this is unexpected, right? This is unexpected and a wrench in the gears of Jesus' plans. But the answer is clearly no. Clearly no. Even this is foreseen. Even this is part of the drama of the gospel narrative as it unfolds here in Matthew and just in history. So a couple of places that we see this is first from Psalm 41.9. This is a psalm of David, written about a thousand years before Christ. He says, even as a part of this psalm, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Now we didn't talk a lot about this yet in our series here. I don't think in Matthew. If we did, it's been a while, so I'll just say it anyway. Uh, But the way that Jesus uses the psalms, not just here but elsewhere, as well, in other parts of the narrative, when he, when he quotes them, he's always quoting them as though they're about him. It's as if the Psalms are his own prophetic songbook. And, and, he, and he, he cites them as being pattern-like a thousand years, basically a thousand years prior to when he lived, that they occurred in the life of David, the life of Solomon, the life of other kings or individuals that were indicative of what, would, what he would experience later on in his life. So just like that song we sang before I got up here about Jesus being this ultimate anointed son of David. He's called that in the New Testament. He's in the bloodline of David, and he resembles David being an ultimate son of him. The bloodline issue is key. Remember how we started Matthew. We talked about the genealogy of Jesus from an Old Testament perspective and talked about how it's not just blood, it's resemblance. Like, grandsons kind of look like their grandfathers or great-grandfathers or or kind of share some of their interests or something like that, but, but are different. It's the same with Jesus. Jesus is a lot like David. So this is the way prophecy works in the Bible. Something actually happens in history. God ordains it. God moves through kings like King David. And then they happen again for Jesus in a resemblance kind of manner. So It's not just direct prophecy and fulfillment. It's this happened to David and it happens again to Jesus later. It's pattern fulfillment, type or foreshadowing to fulfillment later on. And so when we see David go through something like this in Psalm 41, as Jesus is going to quote, Later, from Psalm 22, the same kind of thing but in a greater capacity is happening to me right now. I'm the ultimate David. I'm the ultimate king. I'm the ultimate one to bring peace. I'm the ultimate one to destroy the enemies of God's people. I'm the ultimate one to bring stability to the world and set up a kingdom, a walled kingdom that no darkness can ever penetrate forever and ever and ever. But part of my experience will be betrayal. Part of my experience will not just be betrayal but a close friend. Will betray me. David had a lot of that in his life, and Jesus here has this too, with his close associate and friend Judas. All right, one pattern. Second pattern is Zechariah 11:12, so a little bit later in biblical history, when the prophets spoke about six to 700 BC around there. In Zechariah 11:12 it says, "And they weighed out as many as my wages, 30 pieces of silver." Now, we're going to come back to this in a few weeks. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but for today's purposes, understand that basically what's going on here in this very difficult to interpret chapter of the Bible is that the people of Israel, the flock, are paying 30 pieces of silver to get rid of Israel's shepherd. The people of Israel are paying 30 pieces of silver because they want to dethrone, essentially, uh, the shepherd of Israel. So the pattern there is then, again, resurfaces here in Matthew 26. The Jews, the chief priests, are paying 30 pieces of silver to Judas to get rid of them. And Judas obviously wants to betray him too, but his motive here appears to be primarily money. And then finally, I don't think I had this on screen, but finally, uh, it's most people note uh, in commentaries and so forth on this passage throughout history have noted that in Exodus 21, 32, it says that Uh, One of the laws that God gave Israel uh, post-Exodus, post-Egypt, was that if you have a slave and a neighbor's ox gores that slave to death, that person owes you 30 pieces of silver. It's it's the same amount. So basically what's being communicated there is there's this referential relationship that the Son of God is being treated as a slave for us. The rich one, the ultimate one, the one who is the, the, the opposite of slave, the free one, The king, the God of the universe, is condescending himself to be human, but also to be treated as a slave and ultimately die on a cross for our sins. All right, there's actually more we could say here about all of those things. It gives you a little bit of a sampling on how much prophecy, how much this has been foreseen, how much this has been typified, how much this has been patterned in history beforehand, and it's just all led up to this point. And it's important to understand this on two levels. On on one level, factually, a lot of you guys might be here and, and you didn't know this yet, so this is a factual relationship between what the Old Testament says and what Jesus ends up doing in his ministry, how he fulfills it. But that's never the end of it. Whenever we see stuff like this, and I'm thinking of a passage right now in 2 Timothy where it says, these things are written down for your benefit, for my benefit, for our benefit as a church. We can understand this factually, We get to know more about Jesus when we see his relationship to David as a betrayed one, as a slave-like. Even though he's not a slave, one became like a slave for us unto death, who was the ultimate betrayed by a friend one, who suffered and died on a cross 2,000 years ago for our deliverance. And in that way, brought a kingdom into the world. In that way, he was king. In that way, he was warrior. In that way, he brought peace between sinners like us and God. So we learn a lot about his prophecies being fulfilled and patterns are being revisited we learn a lot more. As I mentioned last week, it, it almost puts meat on the bones of the simple statement that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Good and true statement, right? What these prophecies do is they put more meat on the bones of this is what that, another way of looking at that. This is another way to understand it. God is king. God is ultimate betrayed one. God is the condescended one who gave himself even over, even over to death on a cross for our sins. On another level though, that's the one level, on another level, If if and when we suffer, and we all do, some of you are suffering even at a high level even today, I think what God does when he frames the narrative this way, we said this last week as well, when God is in control of stuff like this, not just generally in control of the happy things of life, he is, he's the giver of all good gifts. When he's in control amidst suffering, when he himself is going to go to the cross, when he himself is going to be tortured and flogged and nailed to a tree for us willingly, when he's in control of all that, when prophecy predicted all of it, when it's all a part of God's plan A, God speaks to us in our sufferings, in our questions, in our difficulties, and says, calm yourself. Release your anxieties to me. I have everything under complete control. No one sabotages me. I take the worst of evils, and I intend good through it. I'm a master at it. Don't believe for a second that your life is an exception to this because it isn't. Do you see the hope here? That won't completely take away pain, but it will say, it will scream to you in the moment of trial God is with you in it, just like He was with Jesus in this very moment and predicting it to to the letter of how it was going to play out. Do you see the encouragement in that and how much the anchor for the soul it is to know that God is never, ever aloof, He's never distant from you. In good times and bad, the truth of the gospel is in part to know that the Holy Spirit is always present. He's always able to redeem even the worst of things in our life, to bring glory to his name, joy to us, and to smite the devil who would want our suffering to end very differently for our discouragement, for our distant from God, for our questioning of his plans and purposes in our life. But God always intends much different things and always is the victor, of course. All right. Let's move on. Second thing here is a little bit more of an aside, and this will spill into the latter two things. I have four things today. This will uh, inform the latter two, so I'll mostly just give this as an FYI, and I'll explain what this means in the latter two sections here if you're following along on your sermon insert or something like that. Kind of know where I'm going. But verses 12 and 13, let me read that one more time. Right in the middle of the passage, remember this is kind of the crux of it here. It says, When the woman, Mary Bethany, poured this ointment on Jesus' body, uh, Jesus said, In doing this, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Here's the big relationship to see here. The this refers to Jesus' burial. When Jesus says this gospel, what's that pointing to? It's pointing back to my burial. He's saying my burial is good news. My burial is good is the gospel. Whenever that's going to be talked about in the world, what's going to accompany the good news of my death, the good news of my crucifixion, the good news of my burial, will also be this story about Mary Bethany will also, a lot of times, accompany it, just like it is today. Isn't that amazing in one sense? This wasn't even written down yet. It just happened. And Jesus, Jesus knows that it's going to be written down. He knows the New Testament's going to be written very soon after his death and resurrection. And he also knows that his words Mary's actions and the disciples' words all of this will be written down perfectly for us to preach the gospel with. Indefinitely. Just like it is right now in this very room. It's incredible. More prophecy, you could say, right? Being fulfilled, but that's sidebar. All right, going back to verses 12 and 13 though. He's actually getting a lot more specific about the gospel. A lot more specific. Remember how he began the book? He said and all the gospel accounts basically start this way of Jesus was baptized and he started to announce that the gospel of the, of the kingdom was near. Believe the gospel, he said. Turn, repent, and believe the fact that God has drawn near to sinful, sinful humanity to redeem and, and right all wrongs. Basically how he begins. But When he says gospel, it's a little bit foggy, right? We have to keep reading to know what that actually means. We have the Old Testament. We have it typified. We have patterns, of course, all of that. We kind of know what's going on. But if you don't know the end of the story... It's especially foggy. And you have to kind of blow into it by keep reading to clear it away, and Christ does that. He helps us here by now just hours before his death. He says, you wonder what the gospel is, the gospel of the kingdom? It's my burial. It's my death. Whenever the gospel of my death, the gospel of my burial is proclaimed, this story will be accompanied as well. So a very common way the Bible hangs together, by the way, too, if you're new to the Bible, uh, the Old Testament to New is really a relationship between the foggier and the less foggy, the clear. Even the Gospel accounts themselves, like the, right in the Gospel of Matthew, it starts a little bit foggy and gets clear as the story goes on. It's the way God writes, the way God works in the world. And we see that play out not just in the, the minutia, the simple, the, the particular, but also the greater story as well in the entire Bible. So, but again, I want to be clear on this. Jesus says the Gospel is the good news of my death because it's there that I will take away the sins of the world, the great plague that all are affected by. All right, third thing. This is huge. The unlikely understand, while the likely sometimes do not. How does the gospel play into this? Where's the gospel truth here? Let's read verses 7 and 15, juxtaposed to get at this idea. The unlikely woman and the likely Judas, or the likely disciples, you could say as well. I'll read Judas, but you could read the disciples into this uh, too. Verse 7, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. The right response to Jesus, the good thing that Jesus celebrates. But verse 15, and Judas said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. All right, there's some dramatic irony in play here as if you guys know a little bit about biblical narrative, you know, this is a common literary device that's used all over the place, both Testaments, where this unlikely candidate or character is the one that just gets blessed or gets saved or gets protected or gets chosen. And this very likely obvious, certainly that's the one that God chooses, certainly that's the one that God favors, that's the one that God loves, is just somehow not. They don't understand. Plays all over and over. We talked a lot about patterns today already. This is one of the big patterns you see play out in the scriptures. The unlikely just getting it. And the likely not, somehow. It doesn't always play out perfectly and neatly like that, but a lot of times it does. The question is, ultimately, why? But backing up here, here we see it through a contrast, right, between this woman, Mary of Bethany, who uses very expensive ointments uh, to anoint Jesus and is celebrated for this act of of really looking ahead to the burial of Christ and helping prepare his body for burial. And Judas here is, and the disciples, to a degree with him, I'll mention them in a minute, but Judas here is the counterpart, one of Jesus' disciples, and not understanding, but ultimately getting 30 pieces of, of silver. So, one of the contrasting elements here in the narrative is just the amount of money that both are kind of associating with their response to Jesus. So, In the one hand, the woman, uh, we don't know this from this passage, but elsewhere in the New Testament it says more clearly that the alabaster flask of ointment cost about 300 denarii. A denarii was about a day's wage. So basically, about a year's worth of salary is what she was, in this ointment, what she was pouring out in its entirety over Jesus' body in preparation for his burial. Thirty pieces of silver was about uh, a month's wage or so. So you think about it in these terms, basically about $50,000 worth of ointments and $7,000 worth of silver that Judas gets for betraying the Christ. But this woman gives a ton more. So huge difference. So basically what this is then is it's a case of the less educated understanding more than the esteemed professors. The less educated, the not so obvious, understanding more and just getting it more than the esteemed professors. Professors. The woman, and this is a bigger deal in the first century when women were just in a widespread manner much less educated and even less trusted uh, when it came to certain things. But this woman just getting Christ, understanding it, and seeing Christ is worth more as worth way more than these twelve men, these disciples, who Jesus spent the past three and a half years with, especially Judas, but also the disciples who misunderstand this woman's showing of devotion in giving this ointment and pouring this ointment out upon Christ. It reminded me of Luke 10, 21. I'll read this and we'll move into something else here. But Luke 10 says, this is Jesus speaking, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All right, let me go back to the question then. This just happens everywhere. It's unavoidable. If you read the Bible, you can't, you can't avoid this. The question is why, right? Why does this happen? Why is this an important thing for God to highlight in biblical history, and why does it keep happening over and over again? What, what is the, what's the lesson here? What's the theology behind it? What's it pointing us to? And the answer is it's a demonstration of something, like it always is. It's a demonstration that we are not saved by our intelligence, our likeliness of earning God's favor, but rather but rather by God's God's grace. We're not saved by our likeliness, our intelligence, but rather by the sheer grace and choice of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29 is big on this. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes this. It's it's the same topic, just from a more like prepositional standpoint or straight-up standpoint. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here's the big so that, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So what's this all about? God saves all kinds of people. This is not saying that God does not save intelligent people or strong people sometimes. It's not saying that. It's just there's a pattern by which God moves in the world to save very normal, blue-collar, unlikely, not super smart people. And when, you, and when God does that, it screams to everybody watching, especially the soul of the person who was saved, that I'm not that great a guy or girl. How am I saved at all? How do I know things at all about the God of the universe who I can't see? How do I know these things, these deep things about what happened on the cross? How am I at all close to him? How is that really happening? if we're honest with ourselves, we say it's got to be God alone because I'm not the smartest. I'm very average, if not leaning towards the end of the spectrum of the unlikely and the weak. So God is choosing the weak, not the strong, to show that I save you don't. And so he actually says here in, in context in 1 Corinthians 1, I didn't read this part today, but he basically says, look around. It's like he's preaching to them and saying, have you forgotten this? Look in here and look around and look at your leaders, look at your pastors. They're not that great, like awesome people. They're not that smart. They're not that standoutish. They're very normal. And what that should scream to you all the time, and you are too, what that should scream to you is God must, there must be something else in play here that's saved because it's not all the strong and intelligent. I mean, think about it that way. If it was the opposite, if, if we were just the strongest and most intelligent of society, what would that say about the nature of the gospel? We must find him on our own. We must do the theological math to arrive at the conclusion that we're sinners and he's a savior and we figure it out on our own, right? But that's not what happens, the Bible saying. The unlikely get it and the likely do not. It says God reveals, God saves, God softens hearts. God, God, God actually delights in this because of what it tells the world about him. So that the smart can look at that and say, that's right, I'm not that smart. And later they're saved. It's a way to preach the gospel in kind of a, a backhand or backdoor kind of kind of way. I was thinking this past week, it's kind of like uh, some of you guys have kids. We have uh, three kids, and I play uh, Go Fish with them sometimes, or um, what's that other one? We have the Faces. Uh, guess Who? Guess Who? You guys know that one with the faces? Basically, games where they're just luck, you know? It's just, it's, it's, it's just random luck for what card you pick, and there might be just a little bit of skill, like noticing patterns, remembering things, but it's basically luck my kids beat me all the time. And so it's kind of like this, it's like kids winning in games like that, my three-year-old beating me in a game, leads me to say there's something else other than skill that's required here, right? Luck. Otherwise, why are they winning? Like why are these kids winning all the time, right? There has to be something else in play. It's the same, it's the same with the gospel. We look around and say, look at all of us. Look at our stories. Look where we came from. Look at our conversion stories. We're not that great. And that's the point. Praise God that's the case because if we think we are. We'll never run to him. The Bible says God chooses the weak. The Bible narrates Mary of Bethany understood while the disciples were hard-hearted and did not. And Judas rejected to show us that God saves us by grace, not by what we do. We bring nothing to the table. He simply comes our way and reveals himself, so we can't boast. That's the big so that here. So that we can't boast. We have nothing to boast about, right? The only thing we can boast in is God himself. And say, I know Jesus, because based on what he's done for me, it's on his terms I know him, we can celebrate and boast that God saves, we don't. God saves, we don't. God saves, we don't. It's the same with the disciples, though I won't talk about uh, this too much. In one sense, in this, in This story, the disciples are these likely ones, right? If Mary of Bethany or the disciples are going to get it, you think it's going to be the disciples. In another sense, though, we can apply this formula to them as well and say, when you read the gospel narrative, why are the disciples all the time such boneheads? Why does Peter put his foot in his mouth so much? Why do they they constantly not see? When the Son of God who made the universe is looking at them in the face and they have absolutely no idea what's going on. Why does that happen? The answer is to demonstrate to us that they are chosen, accepted, loved, and that there's nothing really special about them other than God loves them. And that's enough. The disciples are the epitome of normal. They're fishermen. They're tax collectors. They're carpenters. They're, they're, just, they're teenagers even. A lot of them are very, very young men and they're just chosen, they're called away from their work. The Bible never says that, and Jesus identified the best of society, the most righteous, and called them. It just said he was walking by, he saw Andrew, saw Peter at their fishing nets, and called them away. He saw Matthew later at the tax collector's booth and called him away from his job, his identity, to be identified now as a follower of Christ. He just chose and, and walked by them. They weren't looking for him, he walked by them. Such is the case for you and me. This is the good news here. This is how God has found you and me. He's walked by you. He's actually at work in the world, softening hearts. He's not a bazillion miles away. Drop the pencil and stop doing the theological math. Look what he's said to us in his word. Look what he's demonstrated narratively. He wants us to know these things, so we'll stop working out our own salvation and just believe in his salvation that came our way. This is gospel stuff, not religion. This is about him, not about about us. All right, this, all of this kind of keeps going here in the fourth point, so we'll keep unpacking this. Jesus' death, the fourth thing here is, last thing, is Jesus' death and burial take priority over giving to the poor. Jesus' death and burial take priority over giving to the poor. Verses 8 to 11 again, let's remember this. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum, $50,000 plus worth of money. Have that in mind. A large sum, and then some, right? And given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. All right, so let's talk about this exchange here that Jesus has with his disciples. Uh, Mary is a bit of a bystander. She's not... uh, said to have spoken here at all, but the disciples raised question, right? What's going on, Jesus? There's a better way to spend this money, right? It's confusing on some levels, and if you guys are here, uh, maybe your starting point, your perspective, I don't know where you guys all are spiritually, but if, if you or anybody else approaches this story as though Jesus were just a man, and that the cross was more of a plan B, not that big of a deal, this gets really offensive quick, doesn't it? If he's just a guy, who says this kind of stuff? Like, I, I'm, I'm more worth all the 50,000 than all the poor you could be ministering to right now, uh, simultaneously or concurrently, whatever, after the fact. I, I, I am, I should be, the focus. If he's the son of God who made the universe and all those people right there in the room and who is dictating history around himself to save all those who would one day believe in him, then it makes a little more sense, a little bit easier to swallow, right? If not a very easy pill to swallow, but at least a little bit more to swallow. Something to hang your hat on and say, oh, okay, makes a little bit more sense. Regardless, confusing and tricky. But what this does for us is it tells us a ton about why Jesus came into the world and, this is what I love, a ton about why he did not come into the world. Both are being communicated here. Why he came into the world, what was his main mission? And what was he not ultimately, at least in a priority sense, ultimately about? What he effectively says here in Matthew 26 is, my death and burial are more important matters than giving physically to the poor right now. All right, now, is is he saying that Christians should never give to the poor here ever? Obviously not, right? He's not saying that. He's actually He's actually saying that and alluding to the fact that they will one day by saying, you'll always have the poor with you. Basically, you could almost hyperlink that and just say, click on it and say, oh, well, a Christian ministry should, be, should have this robust giving to the poor ministry, especially among the poor in a local congregation because of what it reflects about God. Christians should think constantly, as 2 Corinthians 8 says, that God is the rich one who gave to the spiritually poor ones. And so we should pay that forward and reflect that forward and be generous with Christians and non-alike, because at the core of our reality is a rich God who gave to very, very, very poor spiritual people in our sin like us. That's the core of your reality today if you're a Christian, and the core of my reality. We're the poor ones, and the greatest act of the wealthy giving to the poor has already happened in history. And in narrative here, it's actually happening as this narrative is unfolding. Jesus is at least in the back of his mind here. It gets much more clear elsewhere, but he's saying, I'm about to give to the poor on a much greater way than you guys are thinking right now that you could do with this $50,000. I'm going to give billions and billions and and trillions and quadrillions and quadrillions worth of spiritual wealth to the poor of the world for the rest of history by dying on a cross for their sins. Ephesians 1 says, the riches of his grace we are wealthy in. He has lavished on us the riches. It's wealth. The riches of his grace. So God is all about giving to the poor, spiritually and physically, but primarily spiritually. And he prioritizes that that here. So again, Christians should always be about this. He's not saying never do this. But at the same time, let's not bury the lead here. I mean, look at this radical thing that Jesus is, is saying here and the prioritization of how he is saying it. We've got to see Christ in the gospel here. We can learn a ton, if we're attuned to it, about what he's about and what he's not about. Jesus says in today's passage that the gospel, remember we talked about this before, what is the gospel according to Matthew 26? It's his death and burial, right? The this gospel is, that's going to be proclaimed to all the earth, is his death and his burial. It's not ministering to the poor. That's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not that you get to go out and I get to go out and minister to the poor. That's not the good news of the gospel. The gospel is not something that we do. The gospel is something God does, and we are blessed by it. Now, ministering to the poor can be an outflow of our belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is something he has done in history 2,000 years ago, but it is not to replace it at the same time. Jesus gets very clear on what he's about here. If Christianity, if Christianity was ultimately about giving to the poor, this is the perfect moment for Jesus to say, yes, Mary's, Mary's wrong, disciples, you are right, go sell it and minister to the poor right? There's no more perfect moment for Jesus to say, this is it. You're right. But he does the complete opposite. He says, no, it's better that this money and this ointment spent on me because my burial and death is gospel. It's, it's a greater spreading of wealth to the poor. It's, it's, it's a greater salvation. And so it's right that it's right that she is doing this. Man, if you guys are golfers, that, that ball is teed up about this high and the club's this big. It's like, if Christianity is about to the poor, it's like, Just swing at that thing, you know? It's like perfect. But he doesn't. He says, when this gospel, my death and burial are proclaimed, then then what what this woman's done for me will be told in memory of her as well. But right now, the focus should should be right here. This is incredibly good news, you guys. This might be offensive to even some of you. I think it's both. Classic Jesus, right? Offensive and the best news you'll ever hear at the same time. Blend it up. Drink it. It's a great shake. But, but, but take it both, because we need to hear this. It's, it's like this, this good burn that's good for our soul. We realize, that's right, it's, I thought that I knew, but I didn't. I thought that I was a little bit closer, but I wasn't. I thought I was strong, but I wasn't. I thought I was intelligent, I guess not as much. This is really is all about Jesus here, isn't it? This really is all about him. It's not about us. The good news here is that Jesus is not a taskmaster. Jesus is not a legalist. Jesus is not even primarily a teacher. He is, as the angels make very clear in chapter 1, a Savior. Very different. He's a Savior. He's one who dies. He's one who is going to be buried for us to take our sins far away. He's basically saying, by taking the focus off what the disciples want and putting it on Mary and him as the anointed one, the ultimate king who's being prepared for burial, he's saying He's grabbing the disciples by the shoulders and saying, look at me. Look at what I'm about to do for you. Your mind's a thousand miles away. You're missing the crux of history. You're missing God in flesh dying on a a cross for you. You're missing it. So the poor will always be here, but I will not always be. Don't miss this. But they're missing it. They may be well-intentioned, maybe, but even if they are, very, very uh, misguided. All right, so let's move into wrapping this up then. Uh, in conclusion, Jesus has supreme worth. Supreme worth is what this passage is really all about. How are you responding to him right now? The Bible says here, Jesus was buried for you and your sins are gone as far as the east is from the west. And our initial, some of you guys aren't Christians yet, so I'll, po- I'll pose it that way. Your initial response to him and for those of you who are Christians, your ongoing response to him, as it relates even to good things that we can do in his name in our life, dictates what worth we ascribe to the gospel. I want to make sure that's clear. I'm going to read that one more time. Listen to this. Our initial or ongoing response to him, as it relates to even other good things we can do in his name, dictates what worth we ascribe to the gospel. It basically says, are you like Mary or are you like the disciples or Judas? There's, there's really three roads here if you split up the disciples and Judas here. So the question remains, it's, it's relentlessly confronting, you know? That's what I love about the Bible is you can't get to a passage here and not have it confront you and saying, who do you say that I am? Who are you like in this passage? There's, there's clearly <laughs> two roads. I was going to say, I said three before. There are three. I'll talk about three here in a second. But basically two, way, two things you can do with Christ. And there are three roads here. Two being very similar that uh, we'll unpack here to close. The the first question then is, it's healthy to ask these things wherever you are spiritually, even as a Christian, because some of you might be wrestling with these questions even today. Are we like Judas, an associate of Jesus's, but maybe offended at his teachings? He's more important than the poor? Who says that kind of stuff? You're kidding. Or maybe we're more in love with money (laughs) or self than Jesus, or discontent with his vision of being so bent on suffering, so bent on dying and being buried. Or maybe we're just flat out rejecting his claim of being Savior. All this fits in the the camp of the Judas road. Second road is, are we more like the disciples who intend well, but misprioritize? So the question here is, is the essence of your spirituality doing something good for Jesus? Or is it Jesus? The essence of your Christian spirituality—doing something good for him in his name—or is it the man Christ, the God-Man Himself? Might be well-intentioned, but we could misprioritize. If it's the former, it's misguided or flat, or just not enough. It's a spectrum. There could be misguided, or it could be well-intentioned, but not sufficient, not enough. Being a Christian does not mean giving money to the Red Cross every month. That's not what Christianity's all about. Christianity is about relentless devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection, period. Like Mary was so focused on the burial and the gospel, that, that that's indicative of a true Christian's response every day, not just a conversion, but every single day. Where we tell people about it, where we read about it continually, where we memorize it, where we sing about it, where it becomes a mantra of our life. It's the key encouragement, encouraging factor for those we counsel and those we exhort in the faith. It is the thing that defines us. Or third, are we like this woman who comes to Jesus messy in her sin, humble, empty-handed, but again focused on his impending death, namely the gospel that, that he alone can give us and who is therefore received and celebrated by Jesus for? So do you see what he wants from us in this passage? When we're trying to change the world on our own, Even seeking to do good things for him, he says, stop, slow down, sit at my feet and receive from me. Look at what I've done for you. I love you. There's nothing you can do that will pay me back. I don't want that. He's the ultimate giver. He's not looking for payback. He wants to be a giver, a giver, a giver, a giver. And all we have to do is receive by faith. So what he invites us to do in this passage is just slow down, stop, Rest at my feet, believe, and stop replacing me with all the good deeds that you claim to do for me. And here's the irony. I think the beautiful thing is we're not taking the focus off the poor entirely. When we believe and have at the core of our being in this story a God who is wealthy and who gives to spiritually poor people, if you believe that tirelessly every day, you will be more compelled to give to the poor on a local, societal, and global level than you ever will be if someone just came up to you and said, Give to the poor. Jesus said, go do it. I promise you. Christians are compelled by love, the Bible says. We're compelled by grace. We're compelled by a God who gave to us out of his wealth and became poor so that we become rich. 2 Corinthians 8. If we really believe that and adore it, we will be compelled. That's, that's the, this comes full circle. Jesus is not saying never give to the poor. He's just saying, focus on me, and then you'll do it, you'll do it more, a lot more later on. As you preach, you'll help the spiritual poor, and as you give physically, you'll help the physical poor to point back to that spiritual, that greater spiritual gift that God has for all of us in deliverance from sins. So again, the invitation here is rest. Come to me heavy laden, burdened, and I will give rest for your souls. The fact that Jesus so frequently stops people from their ministry, remember Mary and Martha? Looked at that a little bit earlier in our series, I think. Was that in Luke? I forget, Barron just preached that once out of, out of uh, Luke. Anyway, Mary and Martha, uh, might be the same Mary here. We're actually not sure if it is, uh, but Mary and Martha. Martha's working very hard for Jesus in the home, and Mary sits at his feet. Martha gets pretty upset, a lot like the disciples here, right? Same pattern. Martha's indignant. Martha's like, what's going on, Mary? Uh, Jesus? Tell her to start working and help, helping me serve you. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the right portion. It's better to sit at my feet than to work for me. You're not saved by what you do. You're saved by what Jesus does for you. It's a pattern, it's a pattern, it's a pattern. It's, a, it's, a, it's screaming from the mountaintops. God's saying, rest. Don't do rest. You'll do later. After you rest, as you keep resting, you'll be prompted to do, but in, from the right mindset. Not to save yourselves, some false sense of security, but you'll do so because you're compelled by me. Compelled by my love. You'll want to demonstrate that and preach that from the mountaintops for the rest of your days. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for the gospel of Matthew 26, 6 to 16. Thank you for reminding us over and over and over again how it's all about you and not about us. Uh, God, it really, truly is. God, I pray that you would help us to respond now in light of that, wherever we are spiritually, uh, to just stop the charade, uh, stop acting as though we're strong, stop acting as though we've done enough to turn your head, and even taking the focus off all the good things we can do for you. Uh, and putting it on that rather than just on you and your burial and your death, which is the core of the gospel. Help us to do that tirelessly and just course correct us. We always need that. We're going to walk out of this building uh, uncourse corrected. We we constantly need this course correction on you as you helped Mary, you helped the disciples, uh, you helped us through that story as it's proclaimed today to know exactly what the gospel is and what it's not and how we can healthily prioritize spiritual matters in our life on a regular basis, God. So uh, forgive us for all of our sin. Uh, Forgive us for rebellion. Forgive us for arrogance and for placing so much self-worth on us and other things besides you um, or more than you. God, just speak into our lives and correct uh, the, the false doctrine we have and we hold so dearly. That's just untrue and it leads us away from you all the time, all the time. So thank you for being so clear about who you are, that we have that lighthouse amidst the fog to look at and say, ah, that's good news. That's what God is like, and this is what we're like. But look at God. So God, I pray that you would just encourage us in that. Save us from our sin for the first time right now. As maybe sinners in this room like all of us. Cry out for the first time and say, God, help me. God, help me. Save me from my sin or for the thousand, whatever it is. God, I pray that you'd realign us to the things of grace, realign us to the things of mercy, things that matter things that are associated with your death on a cross for for ruined sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, let's stand and respond.